Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 19 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, June the 12th. First, I'll be talking to leading Australian barrister Ian Neal, SC, on the implications of COVID-19 for the gig economy. And then I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Grian on the challenges of making forecasts about health and the economy. But now, let's talk to Ian Neal. Uh, Ian, let's talk about the implications of the... COVID-19 on the gig economy? That's a very large question, Leon. (laughs) Where would you like me to start? Well, let's start with the implications of it for workers. Well, they are both positive and negative, good and bad. Gig economy workers generally are paid when they work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. And the COVID-19 crisis has, in some areas, reduced the opportunity for work and in other areas increased it. That's going to have an immediate impact on gig economy workers, obviously. There are questions about where they, where gig economy workers fall under the um, federal government's various stimulus and support packages. Those questions have not been adequately addressed or or at least fully addressed by the government in the announcements that it's made about those packages. So when that is clearer, more will be known about that impact. So does that mean this will be sorted out legally 
in courts? I rather think not. Um, for the moment, uh, the focus will be on determining where gig economy workers fall for the purposes of the stimulus and support packages we've been talking about. It, to my mind, very many gig economy workers will come under at least some of the income support measures that the government has introduced. I think that'll be sorted out administratively rather than legally. Though. Okay, but uh, which, which workers would be missing out? The trigger for many of the federal government's income support measures depends on the, the amount by which a particular worker's income has been reduced. Some gig economy workers will uh, have increased their income. Others will have decreased their income by very much or the, the sorts of figures that will trigger federal government income support, but there'll be others in the margin in between. And how will it impact on companies employing gig workers? Well, no, no companies employ gig workers, and that's a, that's a very important point. As a society, we hinge many benefits on uh, the hook of employment, and gig economy workers are not employees. That's a, perhaps a contentious statement, but I think on analysis, it must be right. So what is being done to support gig economy workers in, besides the government's package? Well, some gig economy platforms, Uber, for example, came out very early in the piece and announced uh, measures to support those people who used its platforms to work who were unable to do so as a consequence of COVID-19, either because they had the disease themselves or were at risk and were required to isolate. And that was a, That's a measure of, so far as I understand the way Uber has described it, supporting drivers and delivery partners and so on who had lost the opportunity to work because of COVID-19 rather than um, by way of providing them, for example, with something akin to sick leave because, of course, that's not something that gig economy workers have. They don't have it because they're not employees. How adequately is the law addressing the growth in the gig economy? Well... Uh, the word adequate is loaded with all sorts of connotations. So far, the focus has been, as it often is in our legal system, on the question of whether people who are working in the gig economy are employees and the related question of by whom they might be employed. By and large, in our country, as in many other similar legal systems, the answer has been that they are not. And as I said earlier, I think inevitably that will be the answer. That's been the focus of our legal system's inquiry into the gig economy so far. Do you expect this will develop further, though? Because as the gig economy grows, it will put more, more pressure on the legal system, won't it? That's probably true. I would agree with that. But that's a kind of pressure that the law is used to dealing with. Our law is very well adapted to dealing with new circumstances. Ours is not a, as, as a codified system, and so it is adaptable. How it will adapt, that's another question. Well, how, do you, how would you envisage it would adapt? At the moment, I, there are still cases in the system in which tribunals, the Fair Work Commission, for example, are looking at whether uh, gig economy workers are employees. Many of those cases turn on their particular facts, but when you're looking at 
something in the true gig economy uh, and the the true gig economy I would define as as that in which a platform is used to connect people who want to provide their services with people who want to acquire those services that's the that's the true gig economy when you're looking at those sorts of workers there are so many features of their relationship with the people who acquire their services as well as with the platforms that point against them being employees but uh, surely it would it would seem that uh, the whole covid-19 pandemic has actually put a lot of pressure on the gig economy and the law would have to respond to that uh, it certainly put a lot of pressure on on the gig economy as it has on every part of the economy the law is uh, in this and every other area is going to be wrestling with the consequences of the covid-19 emergency for a very long time and not just in relation to the gig economy but in relation to many aspects of commercial life and many aspects of employment as well just think about questions of the entitlement of employers undoubted employers to stand employees down without pay now that's a whole species of question that the gig economy doesn't have to wrestle with because it's already organized in a way where that's not not a, re- a question so yes the law will have to um deal with the consequences of the covid-19 for the gig economy as for every other aspect of the economy but in different ways we will be seeing in the law seeing those implications work work their way out for a very long time very long time we're talking more than months here we could we're talking potentially years aren't we correct 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 in in every aspect of the economy work a, as a type of economic social behavior is the subject of so much of our law and that law is going to have to wrestle with what's happening now uh, unprecedented events really for a long time for a long time in fact the gig economy though for reasons that I've touched upon is perhaps more adaptable to or more readily adaptable to changing circumstances than employment relationships the latter are heavily regulated in our society the former are much more dictated by the individual circumstances of the people who are working in the gig economy and the reality is gig economy workers come and go they come and go there if there's been some studies of the prevalence of gig economy work and the way in which the, to use a loose expression the workforce the gig economy workforce is constituted and that's a very prevalent feature they 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 come and go it's still a relatively surprisingly for its impact on daily lives its visibility it's still surprisingly uh, very much a minority in the overall workforce the the population of people who work in our society Okay, that's despite all the focus being on uh, societies turning more into a gig economy. Uh, correct, correct. It, it's an enormously, it's a growing feature of our uh, aspect of our economy. It's influential. Uh, many of its ideas, I think, will have the capacity to spread more widely. But it makes up a minority of the overall workforce. The, uh, a recent study that was done last year 
by various universities, the University of Adelaide, the University of Technology here in Sydney and QUT in Queensland, found that a little over 14% of the working population in New South Wales had participated in digital platforms. And that was the highest percentage. It'll be fascinating to watch how the law adapts to uh, the impact of COVID-19 on employment and the gig economy. And uh, Ian Neal, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you very much. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Green. Nicholas Green, the pandemic showed us that economic and health forecasts are all over the place and much of it seems to come down to what we don't know and how much we're prepared to concede that. What's your take on it? Uh, well, I was, I, I, when, this, uh, when all the action uh, started in mid-March, I wrote quite a few blog posts and, uh, on this, and I was, I was kind of appalled, I suppose I shouldn't be, because, of course, the situation that people were facing was a very difficult one. But I was myself trying to think about what to do and I was trying to ask doctors whom I knew uh, about what measures I might take. And what I found was that everyone was saying, well, the advice is this and the advice is that. And the problem with that was that all this advice on what to do was based on a completely different situation. So for instance, I, a friend of mine had bought an oxygen concentrator. An oxygen concentrator you see uh, old, older people sometimes uh, use them uh, when they're not getting enough oxygen in their lungs. And we knew that this disease could end you up in intensive care on a respirator. So it seemed to me that if intensive care was overwhelmed, I might be out in the community gasping for air trying to survive. And I was trying to find out from doctors whether buying an oxygen concentrator might lower my chances of dying. And I couldn't get an answer. I, that they'd say, well, the indications are that you certainly shouldn't use an oxygen concentrator without a prescription. Now, in fact, there are some things you have to learn about oxygen concentrators to use them safely. But the system was not... A, what I wanted to do was I, we were all in this emergency situation. And what I wanted to do was to tap into the expertise of people with medical training and get them to help me make that decision. And all they were able to do was to say what I was and wasn't allowed to do. And so I started blogging about the fact, I, I kind of go on about this all the time, but it becomes much more critical in an emergency, which almost by definition, we won't have faced something exactly like this before, for people to use their expertise in an adaptive way to use what expertise they have to then use their common sense to say, well, yes, you probably can lower your chances of dying from 1% if you get this disease to maybe half a percent, we don't know. And, and this is the sort of reasoning that I wanted to see in the whole system. And that's not what I saw at all. I saw chief medical officers telling us that it would but we would have to flatten the curve and we would and we would have to uh, this would go on for 6 months and i having listened to various epidemiologists saying we should try and eradicate the virus it seemed to me that we needed a a good rigorous probing discussion about what we knew 
what we didn't know, whether we should go for eradication or to flatten the curve. And as I watched one press conference after another, I watched Australia's chief medical officer, his deputy, not have any anything clear to say about this rather other than the assertion that we that we we couldn't eradicate it and the media wouldn't press him on it they still haven't pressed him on it over in new zealand they have they are going for eradication we haven't had a clear debate about that and this goes all the way all all along the line so what do we think of face masks well that hasn't been clear right from the start when we open schools are we doing what they're doing in China, which is taking kids' temperatures as they walk in? Every kid, very easy, very quick. Someone in the community will have one of those uh, thermometers. You can buy them now at the chemist where you just uh, press a button next to somebody's temple and it gives you a temperature reading. These are things that we could be doing. I'm not telling you we should be doing them all. I'm saying that our system should be thinking about these things and where they make sense doing them. And that's not what we're doing at all. Uh, we don't seem to have that adaptive sort of thinking also in our economic forecasts for uh, what's happening with the virus. I mean, the Reserve Bank, uh, the Fed's been all over the place on this. Well, uh, again, one of the things that happens is that there's a great deal of performance of one's expertise. Uh, now, some of your listeners will be familiar with Nasser Nicholas Taleb, the author of The Black Swan. And he's a very smart guy and he's done all his thinking as a trader. So he's not very interested in proving how expert he is by showing you how fancy his model is. He wants to make money on 51% of his trades and survive life on the 49 percent of the time when he loses money. So he's trying to think adaptively on this sort of stuff. And he's been incredibly critical of the epidemiological modeling. Uh, I would say the same thing of the economic modeling, which is that modeling should not be about an expert performing their expertise and saying a bit like a fortune teller, well, I, I say that this is how many deaths, this is what will happen in the future. That's way too hard. We know way too little to do that. What a model might do is a model might help you say, this model suggests that the three most important things we can do to lower spread of the virus is, you know, social distancing, closing, you know, sporting events and trying to target super spreader events. And this part of the model suggests that if we can lower the death rate in ICUs, that'll give us this many benefits. So that the expertise is not about performing for the public and telling them what they'd all love to know, but nobody actually can know, which is what the future holds, but rather teasing out aspects of what we can do to work out what is best to do in the time with the resources available. Uh, so we need available information resources to help us work out what the important questions are, either yes, that's right. the and economy or health. 
That's right. And so let's think about the future now. Let's say we, we, we're doing very well for various reasons. We did some good things like stopping flights from China pretty early. So things are working out very well for us. We've now got really big economic problems. And again, if you were to apply this way that I'm suggesting we think to the future, the actual forecasts of the, we should have some forecasts of the future, but we shouldn't spend too much time worrying about whether unemployment will be, you know, 11.5% or 13.5%. We should be focused on, of course, what we can do to lower that. And also, one could paint, I suppose, three or four ways that the economy could react. We could be having supply problems. At to, in other words, uh, we, we, there could be demand for certain things without sufficient supply. That's a possible problem. Or there could be adequate supply of things without sufficient demand. Uh, then there will be questions about, well, what is stopping people from buying, all that sort of stuff. So imagine if our plan for emerging from this crisis, in addition to doing a few forecasts, is to try to say what data sources would be the best data sources so we can quickly understand what's wrong and quickly come up with ideas to set it right. I suspect that's not really what we're doing. I suspect what we're doing is to say, well, we've got all this data and we'll, then we'll, you know, the virus, the problems of the virus will lift, we'll try and get back to normal, and then we'll start questioning these things. And it seems to me that if you adopt this kind of adaptive thinking approach, we might be thinking now about what kinds of questions that we're going to be wanting to ask in two weeks, two, uh, one month, two months, four months, and trying to get the pieces of the puzzle in place, both the diagnostic puzzle, the data we need, and also ideas about how we might try to, to deal with those issues that we, that we turn up. So we, ha we need adaptive thinking to actually tap into information resources to give us the right scenarios to handle this? I think so. And again, look at, uh, at, and then some of the things I spoke about earlier remain relevant. So for instance, public transport is, is a kind of a potential super spreading story, crowded trams and so on, a great place to catch, catch the virus to, to uh, get ourselves a second wave. Why, why we're not using masks on those trams, I don't know. Why we aren't maybe calling for, and this is really, I'm just brainstorming here, so this, there may be good reasons why this isn't practical, but we could call for volunteers like we did with the 2000 Olympics and say, who would like to travel on the trams with, a, with disinfectant, basically just going around cleaning the trams for two or three hours a day? There are lots of, likewise in schools and so on. I think there are lots of things we can do but we're sort of looking to the experts and I think the experts have been letting us down a bit here because the experts are busy doing the experts job, but this, this is something that we could do at every level. Attacking something at every level is going to be a lot more successful than just doing it from the top. 
Well, Nicholas Green, those are wise words. And uh, we, let's hope uh, people take all of that on board. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, the economic downturn in the US triggered by the pandemic has been officially declared a recession. The National Bureau of Economic Research made the designation on Tuesday, citing the scale and severity of the current contraction. It said activity and employment hit a clear and well-defined peak in February before falling. The ruling puts a formal end to what has been more than a decade of economic expansion, the longest in US history. Meanwhile, US markets continued their rebound, with the Nasdaq hitting a record-high close, becoming the first of the major indexes to confirm a new bull market, and the Dow and S&P 500 jumping amid investor expectations that the downturn will be short-lived. And US civil rights groups have received a surge of corporate donations since Minneapolis police killed George Floyd, transforming the fortunes of some of the organisations hit hardest by the COVID-19 crisis. A Financial Times review of statements from US companies found more than $450 million in pledges to groups focused on social and racial justice, which typically depend more on individual donations, often from people in disadvantaged communities. Walmart and its foundation promised to put $100 million into a new racial equity centre. Warner Music and Sony Music announced $100 million in funds with few details attached, and Nike pledged $40 million to various organisations. Amazon, Facebook, Google and Spotify announced donations of $10 million or more, with Apple giving undisclosed amounts to groups including the Equal Justice Initiative. Goldman Sachs, Target, United Health and Verizon's foundation each gave $10 million. Jacob Harold, Executive Vice President of Candid, which studies non-profits and foundations, said it had tracked $232 million in donations to racial equity groups since Floyd's death, almost as much as they receive in a typical year. The influx has come as the COVID-19 pandemic has plunged charities into crisis. After a decade of growth, many have seen donations collapse, their investments shaken and demand for their services soar. Half have less than six months of cash, said Mr Harrow. And the coronavirus crisis will lead the airline industry into record annual losses of $84 billion US as 2020 goes down as the worst year in the history of aviation, the sector's main global body predicted. Airline passenger traffic is expected to rise 55% in 2021 from its depressed level this year, while remaining 29% below its 2019 level, the International Air Transport Association said in an updated forecast. As an air travel recovery gathers pace in Asia and takes root in Europe and North America, airlines are counting the cost of many weeks of lost business, an increased debt pile and a diminished outlook for future demand. That's why the federal government has poured $800 million into sustaining Qantas through the coronavirus pandemic. About $490 million was sunk into JobKeeper payments for 25,000 staff members and $75 million for repatriation flights and one-off return trips to cities like Johannesburg, Mumbai and Wuhan. Qantas also collected $128 million to support its domestic services. The federal government is on pace to hand the nation's largest carrier almost six times the financial assistance its beleaguered rival Virgin Australia received in the same period. And Air New Zealand will be nimbler, fly fewer passengers and routes, and may cut more jobs as the targets are returned to healthy profits by 2022, its chief executive said as he navigates the airline through the coronavirus crisis. Greg Foran laid out an 800-day plan to customers and staff under which a national flag carrier will look at how to further cut labour costs, including leave without pay, reduced hours, or possibly laying off more people. And remarkably, 
The Westpac Consumer Sentiment Index shows consumer confidence is now back around pre-COVID levels, having recovered all of the extreme 20% drops seen when the pandemic exploded in March and April. Confidence has clearly been buoyed by Australia's continued success in bringing the coronavirus under control, which has in turn allowed for a further easing in social restrictions over the last month. The index is now only 2% below the average in the preceding September to February period. And the unprecedented 58% fall in ANZ job ads over March and April ended in May, with a 0.5% rise in the monthly average. The week-to-week movements are more promising, with job ads improving steadily during May from a low point at the beginning of the month. This is consistent with the gradual rollback of COVID-19 restrictions, which has allowed some businesses to reopen, extend trading hours or increase activity, and is seeing a recovery in household spending. A net 600,000 people lost employment in April and another 600,000 people became underemployed. ANZ expects to see another net employment loss in May, reflecting the weakness in labour demand in the second half of April and early May. But a period of rapid improvement in the labour market is likely from mid-year as business activity rebounds. And Australian business uncertainty remains high, despite a further broad-based improvement in NAB's monthly business survey as coronavirus restrictions ease. Business confidence recovered to a net balance of minus 20 points in May from minus 45 points in April. Business conditions recovered to minus 24 points from minus 34 points in April. The employment subcomponent of business conditions lagged with a recovery for minus 31 points from minus 34 points. Forward indicators included capital expenditure, capacity utilisation also remained weak, NAB warned. Despite a broad-based improvement, NAB Chief Economist Alan Oster said business conditions remain deeply negative, at a level last seen coming out of the GFC, with the services sector weakest. Similarly, business confidence remains weak, with the current reading last seen around the trough in the 1990s recession. And Chinese investment in Australia plunged 58.4% last year to $3.4 billion, the lowest level since 2007, according to a report released amid a broadening diplomatic spat between the nations. The demystifying Chinese investment in Australia report by KPMG and the University of Sydney also showed the number of Chinese investment deals dropped 43% to 42 from 74 in 2018. One deal, Mengyu Dairy Company's acquisition of Bellamy's Australia for $1.5 billion, accounted for 43.7% of the year's total. Even as China remains Australia's largest trading partner, there are increasing signs of widening rift between the nations. Australia announced on Friday it will implement a tougher screening regime on foreign investors seeking to buy sensitive assets with telecommunications, energy, technology and defence manufacturing companies to be included in the $0 threshold for screening. Factors contributing to last year's investment decline include tighter Chinese regulations for overseas deals, state-owned enterprises reducing investments in developed markets in favour of developing nations, and negative perceptions by China towards stricter investment regulations by the Australian government, according to report co-author Doug Ferguson. And China is warning its students to reconsider plans to study in Australia due to an increase in racist attacks as it steps up a campaign to punish Australia economically for supporting an international probe into coronavirus. The travel warning on Tuesday follows last week's advice for Chinese tourists to stay away from Australia and is a potential blow for the university sector, which was already expected to lose $12 billion in revenue from Chinese students this year. 
The trade threat against Australia's third biggest in- export income earner comes on top of restrictions on Australian barley and beef since the Morrison government angered Beijing by calling for an international investigation into the global pandemic. The official advice issued by, by China's Ministry of Education came as university campuses prepared to reopen in July, although students currently in China would not be allowed to travel overseas anyway under existing restrictions. It was not as strongly worded as last week's warning for tourists to stay away, but still directed students to reconsider their plans. And women are less likely than men to go back to their normal spending pattern as the COVID-19 shutdowns are lifted, according to research that highlights how a broader shift towards more frugal consumer behaviour may slow the country's economic road to recovery. The findings from a survey by Boston Consulting Group and market research firm Dynata also shows younger women are less likely than younger men to feel financially secure, but more likely to believe they have enough savings to get through the downturn. The survey of 1,514 Australians conducted between May the 21st and May the 26th found only 32% of millennial women aged 25 to 36 agreed that their spending habits would return to normal compared to 39% of millennial men. In addition, more than a third of millennial women, or 35%, said they did not feel financially secure compared to 26% of men in the age group. This more pessimistic view of women around their financial situation was present across every age group surveyed. And the Morrison government has extended the instant asset write-off by another six months to December at an expected cost of $300 million in an effort to prevent a further crash in business investment. Despite COVID-19-related $100,000 cash grants and a $70 billion JobKeeper program, private business investment slumped 2.9% in the year to March, and forecasts from the Reserve Bank point to a 13% drop by December this year. The Instant Asset Write-Off Scheme provides immediate tax deductions for small and medium-sized businesses on certain expenditure allowing such businesses to pay less tax on their profits. This frees up more cash for them now rather than over several years into the future when the tax deductions would have been able to be made. The extension of the business asset write-off will be available to more than 3.5 million businesses employing more than 9.7 million employees. And unions have warned the jobs of more than 2,000 postal workers are under threat after Australia Post managers allegedly told workers a restructuring of delivery services could lead to the jobs of one in four posties being cut. Australia Post on Monday left open the prospect of voluntary redundancies but denied the new delivery model, which will see letters delivered every second day, would result in forced job cuts. The Communications, Electrical and Plumbing Union will lobby the ALP and Senate crossbenchers to back a disallowance of motion overturning a government regulation that permits Australia Post to change the way it delivers postal services. Australia Post managers had briefed workers on a new structure that would see the scrapping of existing arrangements where four traditional postie runs are staffed by four posties. Under the proposed restructure, two of the posties would take two of the runs each and deliver letters at small untracked parcels on alternate days. Responding to the union claims, Australia Post denied postal delivery workers would be forced out of their jobs. And the Australian Associated Press Newswire will be sold to a consortium in a bittersweet deal that will save the 85-year-old news service but mean half the editorial jobs will go. AAP Chief Executive Bruce Davidson told staff of the sale, first to a consortium led by former News Corp Australia and Foxtel Chief Executive Peter Tonner. Mr Davidson said AAP and the consortium reached commercial terms and would now enter negotiations to complete a sale by the middle of June. 
AAP is owned by Nine, News Corp, Seven West Media and the Australian Community Media. Nine, owner of the Australian Financial Review and News Corp, are the largest shareholders. Mr Tonar said he was looking forward to working with the AAP team to continue its great work and to find new commercial opportunities to ensure its long-term survival. But the ABC will axe up to 250 jobs after staff were told on Tuesday that the public broadcaster needs to cut $41 million from its annual budget. Staff working in news, analysis and investigations, entertainment, regional and local programs and production and contact technology will be offered the opportunity to apply for a redundancy package. The announcement follows a three-year funding freeze on the ABC that began last July and ultimately delivers an $84 million budget cut. Meanwhile, News Corp has also announced that just under 100 jobs will be cut at the newspaper's biggest titles, including The Daily Telegraph, The Herald Sun and The Australian. And former Cricket Australia Chief Executive James Sutherland will spearhead a push to restart live entertainment. The move comes as a T20 World Cup on which Mr Sutherland sits as a director remained in doubt ahead of its scheduled start in Australia from late October, as do the stadium shows and music festivals which normally dominate the summer calendar. As head of the newly formed Live Entertainment Industry Forum, Sutherland will bring together the country's biggest sport and entertainment promoters and some serious egos, including Melbourne heavyweight Michael Godinsky's Frontier Touring and Sydney behemoth Michael Chugg's Chug Entertainment. It also includes heads of Live Nation, led locally by CEO Roger Field and shared by Michael Coppell, and TEG, which is led by Jeff Jones, and linked to fellow legendary music promoter Paul Dainty. Major stadiums are also inside this tent, including the cricket grounds in Melbourne and Sydney, Marvel Stadium and Melbourne Olympic Parks, Adelaide Oval and the Australian Festival Association, among others. The group has promised to develop the world's best safety protocols to uniformly apply across major events, stadium shows and festivals to satisfy the requirement of the public, governments, health officials and sporting bodies. And the founder and chief executive online retailer, Kogan.com, says the initial flood of online purchases of laptops, webcams, office chairs and bread makers during lockdowns has translated into a big shift into broader categories that has driven a doubling of sales in April and May. Ruslan Kogan said on Friday the group's 13 distribution centres around Australia are busier than they'd ever been, as an additional 126,000 extra customers joined the company in May, propelling active customer numbers to 2,074,000. The company said on Friday gross sales across the April and May period were more than 100% higher than the same time a year ago, and the gross profit was up 130%. The average rate of, of earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation in April and May was now $7 million. Kogan.com shares have surged from $4.10 on March 23rd to give the company a share market capitalisation of $1.2 billion. This market value is now more than five times that of department store group Meyer at $220 million. Kogan.com has also launched a $115 million capital raising with a fund set to be used on future value accretive opportunities. The raising will comprise a $100 million fully underwritten placement price at $11.45 per share, a 7.5% discount to its Tuesday close, and $50 million share purchase plan. And sales have soared at Catch, Bunnings, Officeworks, with people working from home, and West Farmers online operations, but the conglomerate has warned that higher COVID-19 related costs will take the edge of profit growth this year. In a trading update on Tuesday, West Farmer said Bunning sales had risen 19.2% in the June half to date after a 5.8% growth in the December half, lifting sales so far this year by 11.3%. 
office work sales have risen 27.8% in the June half, following 11.5% growth in the December half, lifting year-to-date sales by 19.3%. At online retailer Catch Group, which was acquired a year ago, gross transaction values soared 68.7% in the June half, up from 21.4% growth in the December half, lifting sales so far by 43.7%. West Farmer's total e-commerce sales across all divisions rose 89% as consumers ordered online to avoid the shops. However, the strong sales growth will not flow straight through to the bottom line. West Farmer's chief executive, Rob Scott, said Bunnings had invested about $20 million in additional cleaning, security and protective equipment to respond to COVID-19 over the three, last three months. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Ipsos Australia Director David Elliott on results of the latest ongoing survey into COVID-19. The survey found that Australians are divided in their opinions about opening businesses due to concerns that it puts too many people at risk of COVID-19. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors Chief Economist Alex Joyner on what's happening with our recession. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, Talking BizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 